Welcome to Truly Fit, the online fitness marketplace connecting pros and clients through unique fitness business software. Welcome to the Truly Fit Podcast, where we interview experts in fitness and health to expand our wisdom and wealth. I am your host, Steve Washuda, co-founder of Truly Fit and author of Fitness Business 101. On today's episode, I speak with Dr. Glenn Livingston. Glenn has a PhD in psychology. You can find him at Livingston Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, on Instagram, or his book, Never Binge Again, at www.neverbingeagain.com. Glenn and I today will be discussing overeating and binging, which is his specialty. We go over the clinical definition of overeating or binging, and if that's different from his definition, we talk about the evolutionary reasons why we may be doing this. We talk about if overeating and the stimulation is tied to particular foods, and I give him some hypotheticals to break that down. We go over the standard treatment that one would give in the medical community to somebody who is dealing with uh, this overeating or binging issue and what Glenn would do differently to help people overcome this. Uh, A lot of different studies and evidence surrounding uh, Glenn's beliefs in overeating. We talk about consumerism and corporatism involved in uh, especially the Western culture and how that adds to overeating and binging and a host of other things surrounding this. It was a great conversation and Glenn is certainly a wealth of knowledge as this is his expertise. With no further ado, here is Glenn Livingston. Glenn, thank you so much for joining the Truly Fit Podcast. Why don't you give the audience and listeners a bio of who you are professionally, your credentials, and what you do in the health industry? Well, um, I have a lot of kind of highfalutin fancy credentials. I, I am a PhD in clinical psychology, and I was a child and family psychologist originally. Um, been in all sorts of radio and TV, and I had a dual career because my ex-wife used to travel for business, so I had a lot of time on my hands. We didn't have kids and I didn't commute. So I also consulted for industry on the wrong side of the war. I, in my 30s, was working for a lot of big food companies, big advertising companies to help them to sell us a lot of junk. And I always feel bad about that and I'm trying to make up for it now. Um, But I was very good at it and I ran a multi-million dollar company for a lot of years. And um, more importantly for the purpose of this interview is that I'm not just a doctor who decided to work with overeaters. I had had a very serious overeating problem myself. I was somewhere in the 280 pound range and um, I had, you know, extremely high triglycerides and psoriasis and rosacea and all types of autoimmune problems. And the, the doctors were yelling at me all the time, but I found that the food really had a hold over me and Coming from a family of 17 psychologists and psychotherapists, I figured the problem must be that metaphorical hole in my heart. And if I could figure out how to heal the hole in my heart, then I wouldn't have to heal the hole in my stomach. And it actually distracted me. And it took me like 20, 25 years to figure out that um, overcoming overeating was more of an alpha, alpha wolf approach, a kind of a tough love dominate your cravings kind of thing versus um, a love yourself thin kind of thing. And there are a number of influences on that, including some of the consulting work that I did where I saw these companies were engineering, you know, food-like substances, which were hyper palatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins. And, and it was um, all directed 
at hitting the bliss point in the reptilian brain without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And every time that someone was looking for love in a bag box or container, there was some fat cat in a white mustache and a suit laughing all the way to the bank. And um, looking at those external forces, I eventually realized that they had nothing to do with my upbringing or my personal psychology, um, or that I was a little depressed or lonely at the time. And they had much more to do with these external forces and that we're told the wrong thing in society about how to overcome overeating, where we're told, told to like eat healthy 90% of the time and indulge 10% of the time, which ignores the fact that um, that requires a lot of decision-making and willpower is the ability to make good decisions. And there are only so many good decisions we can make every day. Um, so we're actually better off with really clear lines, um, you know, like very hard and fast rules more so than these fuzzy guidelines, which require a constant decision-making and wearing down a willpower. Um, and through, you know, a long series of turns and events and a study that I did, and we can talk more about any of them at any time, um, I came to the conclusion that I could fix this with a much more aggressive um, and clear-cut practical approach than, uh, than an in-depth psychology approach. So that's what I did. And it turned out that I wrote a book, um, which got really, 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 really popular. It's got 13,000 reviews, which is more than the Da Vinci Code. Um, and so now that's what I do. I go, I go around and I speak about it. And I have a boutique coaching agency where we help people implement the method. And um, we're trying to help a million people a year to stop binge eating. That's the goal. So well, that's, that's me. That's, that's my story in a nutshell. That's a fantastic goal. And I'll, uh, I want to thank you in advance for uh, uh, leaving the corporate gig to join uh, Team Good Guys and, and really make a difference. That's, uh, that's not trying, easy. trying, man. I'm trying. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it doesn't pay as well, but it's okay. It certainly doesn't. So that's, uh, it's very big of you. And, um, it, it let's, I think we should start from the beginning here. Let's define overeating. And that could be a clinical definition, Glenn, or that could be your definition. If that's different than the clinical definition. It is different. It is different. Um, I, I write for psychology today, these days too. And I wrote this long article about the discrepancy between the diagnostic category of binge eaters, which depending upon what study you look at, falls in the like two and a half to 3% range um, of the population. And the fact that 40% of Americans are obese. Um, so something's missing there, right? <laughs> it's, um, and there are, you know, diagnostically the, you know, DSM-5 would say that, well, there are, you know, there are other forms of eating disorders like anorexia and bulimia, which are also a fairly small incidence and this fairly large category called eating disorder, not otherwise specified. But I think the question, am I a binge eater in and of itself? And I, I could tell you what the DSM-5 criteria are if you want, um, or I could just explain to you that the question is actually not entirely helpful with the possible exception that there are some medications that are showing some promise these days, minimal promise. promise. Um, the question, am I a binge eater, ignores the fact that most people in our society eat beyond their own best judgment. And 
most of the things I'll talk about today in terms of how to help yourself with that are things that can help you to eat within your own best judgment. So rather than let someone else define for you what's healthy eating or not, most, most people know what a healthy day of eating looks like for them. Most people know when they're eating healthy and when they're not, for the most part. I mean, in favor of consulting with nutritionists and experts and things like that to get more information. But most people have a much harder time with complying with what they know is best than actually figuring out what's best. Um, so when you ask, have I crossed the line into formal binge eating yet? It's almost like you're asking, how much more can I get away with? And I think that that question in and of itself tends to get people to overeat for longer before they could, um, you know, learn some very practical tools and techniques that could help them to eat the way that they really want to eat in the first place. So that's, that's my answer to that question. Do some people argue, and do you have anything to add to this, that, uh, you know, overeating is just evolutionary? It was a feature, not a bug, in that, uh, you know, for thousands of years, it was difficult to get food. And so, you know, there's sort of epigenetics ingrained into us, into our DNA to say, if we have food near us, we need to eat it. Um, I wouldn't argue with that at all. I would get right behind that. I, I think that what's, what's going on in our society is that these big companies are, are um, pouring billions of dollars into pressing our revolutionary buttons. You know, they're, they're looking to hit the bliss point in the reptilian brain and they don't give us the nutrition to feel satisfied. And that's, that's a, um, you know, it's, it's an unfair button to have billions of dollars to figure out how to trick you into doing that. And then thinking that that's what you need to survive. And um, I'll give you another example of what's going on. So I, I, I want to tell you a little story about three types of fish. And I'll explain to you how this parallels in the food industry. There is a, let's call them a big fish and a, a little partner fish. And then we'll talk about the, the parasite fish. There's a big fish and it's kind of got a little partner. And when the little partner does a dance, the big fish goes into a kind of trance. This is an evolutionary mechanism that's developed over the years, over the, over the millennia. Um, and the big fish, when it's in a trance, because the little fish is dancing, opens its mouth wide and allows the little fish to clean the, the seaweed and gook off of its teeth. And it's a symbiotic relationship, which means that both fish benefit. The little partner fish gets a meal. The big fish gets its teeth cleaned. No harm, no foul. Everybody's better off. But then there is this predator fish, this parasitic fish, that has learned to mimic the little partner fish's dance. So the parasitic fish comes in and does a little dance. And the big fish goes into a trance and opens its mouth, at which point the parasitic fish eats the lips of the big fish in a trance. And so the big fish loses, the parasitic fish wins, and it's not a win-win relationship. But this parasitic fish has figured out an evolutionary loophole by which it can profit. Well, okay, now let's fast forward to the modern food industry and I'll tell you a story about a company that you'd recognize if I gave you the name, so I won't, um, who produce food bars, very well-known food bar manufacturer. And 
I was very friendly with the vice president of marketing. And he told me as he was leaving the company that he was kind of ashamed of the thing that was most profitable to them. And what turned out to be most profitable in the food bar marketing industry was to take the vitamins out of the bar and put the money into shiny, vibrant, diverse, multicolored packaging instead. Because when you give people the illusion that they're going to be eating the rainbow, they believe that there's a, on an evolutionary basis, we're programmed to believe that there is a diversity of micronutrients available. So if you go look for a salad with you know, purple cabbage and deep dark blueberries and yellow carrots and red tomatoes and green lettuce, you're going to be getting a diversity of nutrients. That's what we say, eat the rainbow. As a matter of fact, it's probably why we have such an appreciation for color in the first place. Um, but what was profitable for this company was to fake us out like the predator fish was faking out the, the big fish to make us believe and just kind of go into a trance. And these are automatic responses, automatic evolutionary responses to just go into a trance and think, oh, I have to get the bar with the multicolored colored diverse, you know, a diverse packaging. Because uh, that's where the nutrients are, but the nutrients were not there. And I don't mean to single out the food company, the food bar manufacturers, because this goes on all across the industry. They know how to hit our evolutionary buttons. Um, you know, we didn't have pizza and Pop-Tarts and, you know, all the bags and boxes and containers that we do now, we never had them in the Savannah. And, um, you know, and, and people are really suffering because of that. So I, I totally and thoroughly support what you're saying. I think it's the problem. And then I think society on top of that, because we're not really meant to sit between four walls and stare at a computer screen, hoping electrons get transferred to our bank account all day. Um, I, I think that we have relied on these bags and boxes and containers and these evolutionary tricks and society basically all tacitly agrees to slowly kill ourselves without saying anything about it. As a matter of fact, not only without saying anything about it, but we support each other to do it. So um, it sounds very depressing and it is kind of very depressing, but at the same time, it's like the matrix. And if you know which pill to take and you're willing to wake up, there are some very simple defenses you can take against it, and um, and things are not hopeless. And you know, legislation is kind of sort of slowly coming around, and there are there's more regulatory pressure. And I I think that just like it's not really cool to smoke anymore, I think in 25 years it's not going to really be cool to eat all these uh, processed foods. Um, anyway, I, I was a little long-winded for the answer, but that's what I think. Well, it sounds to me like you think sort of consumerism plays a big role in, again, pressing our evolutionary buttons, for lack of a better term, in order for us to, to be overeaters. So, so my next question kind of ties into that. Let's go ahead and say, hypothetically, we lived in a world that, that those foods didn't exist, right? Nabisco was not a company, and all you could eat was, let, let's say, vegetables and fruits. Could somebody still be overeating at that point or, or would now overeating not exist because we don't have those, let's say, chemicals sending signals to our brain to continue to eat? I think it would be rare. I, I think there are, there are some influences on overeating that have to do with how children are fed as infants 
and some mother, mothers are better feeder than others and some mothers are more consistent than others. And, you know, I think that people can panic that there's not going to be enough food and they're going to starve because they were left too long without mother's breast or something when they were uh, a young lad in the cave. Um, but I, I think that influence is so much less significant than the industrial influence. And I think it is so much overplayed in our society today that um, it, it's almost negligible. That's, that's what I think. What is the standard treatment for an overeater? And I'll give you, again, a, a scenario. Uh, Steve is an overeater. Uh, do I tend to just go to my general practitioner and, and talk to them about this? And then they send me to somebody for the, for the next step? What, what, what goes on? And, and then you could also elaborate why you think that process is potentially broken and how you would fix it. Yeah. I'm trying to remember the name of the woman that educated me about all this. She's at Immaculata University. I forget. I forget her name. She'll be mad at me, but I forgot. But she reviewed all the research with me. And what's interesting is that what's most commonly prescribed is not really what the evidence supports. For, for overeating and binge eating in particular, the evidence suggests that cognitive behavioral therapy and... Um, and some of the new SSRI medications are the only thing that's help, that helps, mostly the cognitive behavioral therapy. But what's usually done is people are sent to an eating disorder specialist who really promotes a philosophy of mindful eating and, um, and not distinguishing between good and bad foods necessarily. They, try to, they really aim to eradicate perfectionistic thinking um, which I think is a good thing and a bad thing. Okay? That's something important to come back to because there's an energy in perfectionism that can be used for good as well as bad, um, but you can misapply it and fuel the eating disorder itself. So usually people are taught to eat mindfully, to be more present while they're eating, to get more sensitive to being hungry and full so they can eat when they're hungry and stop when they're full, um, to stop eating you know, sneak eating and um, to not be frightened of any food in particular. Um, I think that that works for a lot of people to a certain extent, because I do think that a lot of people, I mean, first of all, it's hard to avoid the stimulation of all sorts of foods in today's society. Um, so when you cultivate the fear of a food, you tend to be thinking about it all the time and obsessing about it all the time, and it, it can make things worse. Um, secondly, I do find that the people who are worse off with overeating, they tend to be people who were uh, raised against their own best interest with some type of food rules. You should eat this, you shouldn't eat that. They're not there at the right time. And, and so they developed a survival mechanism to, you know, rebel. And so it, it stops that kind of two-year-old rebellion in, in its tracks. And a lot of people do okay with that. The problem is twofold. First of all, the industrial forces we talk about are designed to break our hungry and full meters. Um, when a bag of chips is manufactured, it's manufactured with slight flavor variation. So you think it's gonna be all in one assembly line with one formula going into the bag, but it's usually a multitude of assembly lines, each of which has a slightly different flavor 
because the variety in flavor kind of confuses the mind into, into looking for more. And so they find that people keep eating due to that subtle variation in flavor. And there are all types of experiments and tricks like that the, that the industry is, is engaged in. So there are things like that that break our hungry in full meters. There's the concentration of pleasure that breaks our hungry in full meters. Um, and then there's the fact that while mindful eating is good, I think there's some research that suggests that we absorb new, more nutrition if we're mindful and um, we tend to stop sooner. And it's really good to be present while you're eating. The problem is in that in the society that we live with, who has time to be mindful all the time? Um, and the third problem is that there, there has to come a point where you delineate healthy versus unhealthy food. If everything you can put in your mouth is okay, then you're destined to poison yourself. There's flavored cardboard in the food system. It's legal. There's flavored cardboard in the food system. At some point, don't we have to stand up and say, this is a good food, this is a bad food? Not just, well, you should kind of sort of try not to have flavored cardboard. <laughs> it's, it, it's, um, the, the regulatory systems are very slow to catch up with what the food industry does. And, um, and so while people overcome the obsession with a purely mindful approach, they don't necessarily overcome eating unhealthy. And so they're not really as happy as they could be with their, with their food and their well-being. And so I've, I've, the system we've developed, we suggest that um, rules are okay. It's okay to come up with rules that talk about the very clearly distinguished healthy versus unhealthy eating. And in fact, it's important to do that because if you don't delineate your bullseye, if you don't draw a circle around the bullseye that you're aiming for, then how do you know when you've hit it or not? If the bullseye that you're aiming for is fuzzy, then when you miss the bullseye, you don't know by how much and in what direction. And so you're eliminating the feedback mechanism that will help you learn. Whereas if you very clearly delineate where your bullseye is, for example, I will only ever have chocolate on Saturdays and Sundays again, then you know if you hit it or if you missed it. If you make a mistake, you're immediately aware of it. You can assess how big a mistake it was. You can assess the exact type of correction that's necessary to aim better at the bullseye next time. And the natural learning mechanisms of our brain are engaged. We are learning organisms. If, if we are provided with sufficient feedback and motivation to hit a, hit a target, and we keep getting up and trying, we're going to get better and better. It's just the nature of what a human being is. But people don't get better because there's you know this idea that you shouldn't have a bullseye and that um, you know the archery target in the first place is a bad idea and you should just kind of aim for progress, not perfection. But the problem with aiming for progress and not perfection when it comes to food goals is it, it really just means you're going to try for a little while until you don't feel like it anymore. What I think we should do instead is commit with perfection, but forgive ourselves with dignity. So when an Olympic archer is aiming at the target, even though they don't hit the bullseye more than 30 or 40% of the time, but when they're aiming at the target, they don't loose the arrow until they feel at one with the bullseye. They're aiming with perfection and that allows them to purge their mind of all the doubt and uncertainty that otherwise would drain energy from accomplishing their goal. 
If they miss the bullseye, they take an assessment of what happened and make adjustments. They don't say, oh my God, I'm a pathetic archer. I might as well shoot all the rest of the arrows off the target or into the audience, right? So they commit with perfection. They take their mistakes and misses seriously, but they forgive themselves with dignity and make use of that feedback. Um, and so I think that the idea of not really thinking of the, the idea of discarding all the energy of perfectionism in order to eat better, I think is a mistake. The idea of focusing that perfectionism on the commitment and aiming phase while relinquishing it when you're analyzing your mistakes, I think that that's what works much better. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I've had some people on the podcast discussing intuitive eating, and I thought that was interesting, but I don't necessarily agree with the whole premise of it uh, insofar as I, I do believe that we have these like hedonic urges where we want to eat bad stuff a lot. And I don't know if we should always in, intuitively fall down that path and say, I need to listen to my body because my body's craving chocolate. So maybe I need something in the chocolate. I think sometimes you just have these, again, these hedonic urges. And for someone like me, again, totally anecdotal, not my area of expertise, but I'll have all of my dinners set for the week, meaning I'll buy seven different types of meals for my wife and myself. I don't necessarily have to eat one on Monday and one on Tuesday. If I'm craving what I bought, you know, any of those seven days, I can switch the menu around and eat what I thought I was going to eat on Wednesday on Monday, but I still have a little bit of a plan around what I'm going to do because with no plan there. And like you said, no goal. I just, I don't see how success comes about. Another analogy might be thinking of yourself like a city traffic planner. And if you were a city traffic planner, you would be responsible for two things. The safety of the populace, you'd be looking to minimize accidents, but you'd also be looking to maximize the mobility of the populace to facilitate commerce and socialization. Sure. Um, if you put too many traffic lights in place, in places that are they're not necessary, you would be you'd be increasing the safety too much at the expense of the enjoyment of the populace and commerce and everything like that. When you're arranging for rules for yourself with food, you actually have a similar task. You're trying to maintain your freedom with food to whatever extent is possible. So you want people to be able to um, avoid the dangerous intersections, which means coming up with rules that really regulate the foods that they get themselves or behaviors they get themselves in trouble with. Um, but once that safety is achieved, you want them to be able to express their urges and kind of free float and daydream while they're driving. Um, so, so I always tell people that we, um, we only want as many rules as are necessary to protect us and no more. And once they're in place, you actually enjoy your freedom more, just like as a participant in a city, I have a greater locus of, what is it, radius of locomotion. I, I can drive about a much farther distance than I could if there weren't any lights at all because people would be crashing into each other all the time. So the discipline actually increases your freedom. It doesn't decrease your freedom. In my world, you keep using this term energy of uh, perfectionism, and I want to sort of unpack that a little bit, how it relates to my world. The, you know, the general population, obviously, is who struggles more with overeating. The athletes, 
and the trainers and the people that I work with, uh, they are now struggling with something that's more vanity-based obsession where they're using that energy uh, of perfectionism or imperfectionism, that the term that you used with the quality and the amount of food and the tracking of food. And they're very fixated on this. And I believe it's a problem. It's becoming a problem. Do you have any thoughts on this or recommendations? Do you deal with this in your, in your personal life and, or day to day? Um, most of the clients that we work with find that tracking is a good short-term tool, but it's hard to sustain it in the long run. And so you know, these tools like MyFitnessPal or Chronometer are useful to get a sense of how much they're eating and where they might need to change in order to accomplish their goals. Um, but they're often best thought of as training wheels that you want to remove over time as you get a sense of things. Because most people feel burdened by the need to track everything before they're, um, before they're eating. People in more extreme situations, for example, um, you know, a woman that traveled every day for business for three months and she had to eat out three times a day with peers and all kinds of unexpected situations. And the way that she handled that was she eliminated all the decisions. All she had to do was before she went to the restaurant, she would look up the menu online and she would enter in exactly what she was going to have into my fitness pal. And then she would just follow that. And so it, it becomes a tool you can apply when um, life is difficult and you're going to require a lot more willpower than usual. But I don't think it's something you want to aim to do as a regular part of your life forever. Um, because that energy could be better used for other purposes. What could be your recommended, whether it's the book or you just maybe talking at a, you know, at a dinner table, like the first objective step that someone would take if they say, hey, I've come to grips, I'm an overeater. What's the first step I'm taking? here? Take a breath and ask yourself, is there one simple rule, a low bar, something you could and would do easily, but which would make a big difference? If you know about the Pareto principle or the 80-20 principle, there are things in life where we get a much bigger bang for the buck than other things. And so if you take a breath and ask yourself, what's one simple rule I could start with and that would draw a very clear black and white line that would distinguish healthy from unhealthy eating for me or healthy from unhealthy eating behavior for me. For example, I knew a truck driver who had about 200 pounds to lose and he was eating at truck stops all day long. And he said, no way I can stop eating at truck stops all day long but I'll tell you what, I won't go back for seconds. And that's what he did. And he didn't lose all the weight doing that, but it got him started in the right direction. He lost a few pounds. He felt like he was in control. He no longer felt hopeless or confused. He reclaimed his spirit. And by doing that for just a few weeks, he began to feel like it was possible. And that motivated him to choose another role that made his behavior a little healthier and so on and so on. And he lost about 150 pounds last time that I heard. Um, other simple rules might be, I'll always put my fork down between bites or I'll never eat in front of a screen again, or I'll only have pretzels at major league baseball games, or I'll never consume calories after 9 PM. Um, whatever it is, just kind of think about what would be a big difference for you 
that you would do, that you could and would do. You probably won't lose weight the first few weeks doing that, but you will gain confidence. And that actually means everything when it comes to overcoming overeating. Once you've set the rule, you want to listen for those voices in your head that suggest that you should break it. It's inevitable that they'll be there because we're all of two minds. We have the reptilian brain, we have our upper brain. The reptilian brain is the survival brain. It's eat, mate, kill, you know, feast or starve. And the reptilian brain is frightened that it's going to starve without whatever behavior or food you've been having to this point. Um, and so it's going to try to take over in all sorts of situations to overcome this rule that your upper brain set. So all you need to do is listen for it. Don't be frightened of it. And when you do hear it, I want you to engage in two behaviors to move the battleground from your lower brain to your upper brain. The first one is to take what Laurie Hammond calls a series of 7-11 breaths. You breathe in for a count of seven and out for a count of 11. I'm not doing it right now because it takes too long, but when you're in the moment, you breathe in for a count of seven and out for a count of 11 about three times. What that does is it activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the part of our brain that says it's time to rest and digest. And this is when it's safe to think about long-term plans and strategizing and hitting long-term goals like health and fitness and weight loss. Um, because we, and it deactivates the emergency response system that says, you know, just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. You better eat something now or you're going to starve, even though it's not true. And the reason that works is that in the wild, if we were being, you know, chased by a hungry bear, we wouldn't have time to breathe out for a count of 11. If we breathe in for a count of seven, we'd be trying to take more oxygen in than oxygen we let out. So 7-Eleven breaths activate the rest and digest system and say there's no emergency here. It sounds kind of hokey, but it really works. Then I want you to be carrying around something to write with. It could be a smartphone, could be um, pen and paper. And I want you to write down what your reptilian brain is saying in the form of a justification. Like you worked out hard enough today, even though it's a Wednesday and you said you're only going to have chocolate on the weekends, it's not going to hurt you know, you won't gain weight with one bar. You know that, so go ahead and do it. Yippee, let's go get some. Um, it'll be just as easy to start tomorrow. So you write that all down. And then you take another series of 7-Eleven breaths because writing down what the reptilian brain is thinking is going to reactivate the emergency response system a little bit. Um, so you take another set of 7-Eleven breaths and then you say, well, what's wrong with what the reptilian brain is saying? How is it lying? And so, for example, in this example, it's saying it would be just as easy to start tomorrow. But the truth is, the principles of neurology suggest otherwise. The principle of neuroplasticity says what fires together, wires together. And so if you have the thought, if you have a craving for chocolate on a Wednesday, and you have the thought that you could just start tomorrow, it would be just as easy. And then you have chocolate. What you've done is reinforce the craving and you've reinforced the thought. So that means that tomorrow you're gonna to have a stronger craving for chocolate and the likelihood of having the thought that says you should start tomorrow again, in other words, have the thought, let's just start tomorrow, tomorrow is going to be more likely. So you've actually dug a deeper hole for yourself. If you're in a hole, you should stop digging. You can only use the present moment to be healthy. 
You always use the present moment to be healthy. And since it's always the present moment, you'll be fine if you do. So um, that's the basic procedure we have people go through. Um, your, it's kind of like, it's a combination of switching nervous systems. Uh, I mean, for, first it's setting down the rules so you recognize when the reptilian brain is active. And then you're switching nervous systems and then you're deactivating the greased shoot that previously existed between the craving and the, the action. Um, so now you've got a shoot that's filled with sandpaper and sawdust. You can still go down it if you really want to, but it's a lot harder and it's much less likely to happen. So that, that's the basic procedure we recommend. There's, there's a lot more to it. Um, you know, and that's why we have coaches and demonstration sessions and things like that. But um, that's basically what we do. That's basically how we help people. Well, uh, why don't we get into that? Where can the audience find you or your coaches, your books, everything, uh, Glenn Livingston? And if, if some of my listeners want to maybe reach out to you directly and just have a question, uh, where, where's best to do this? So if you go to neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button, that'll take you to a page where you can sign up for the reader bonus list. What you will get there is a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. You will get a set of food plan starter templates. So we are diet agnostic. I'm, personally, I'm a whole foods plant-based person, but the program is diet agnostic. You can use it with any dietary philosophy you're trying to stick to. And you know we have all sorts that come to us. And um, we've created sample plans, sample sets of rules just so you can get ideas. Uh, you have to take responsibility for them, but we have one for keto. We have one for whole food plant-based people. We have one for point, point counters, calorie counters. Um, whatever you're doing, there's probably a set of rules that you can use as examples. And finally, I recorded a whole bunch of full-length coaching sessions because I know that there's a lot to follow here and you're saying, what do you mean I've got this other brain inside of me? And it sounds kind of weird, but it's really not. It's a very natural compassionate life-giving process where you can see people go from feeling despair and hopelessness and powerlessness to being excited and enthusiastic and hopeful about food in just one session. Uh, it's all at neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. My guest today has been Glenn Livingston. Glenn, thank you for joining the Truly Fit Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us on the Truly Fit Podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review on your listening platform, and feel free to email us. We'd love to hear from you. Social at trulyfit.app. Thanks again.